there's an outline for this morning's talk in the uh, booklet. I think it's page 16. You might want to flip that up now. Yesterday, in case you weren't here, we spoke in the first talk about the peculiar people that God has made us. Peculiar in two senses of the word. His own peculiar treasure. His own particular people. Uh, and peculiar uh, in the sense that we contrast with um, all the other people of the world. There's something different, visibly different, about the people of God. Called to be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness. That was yesterday's first talk. In the second talk, we talked about the peculiar lives that we're called to in consequence of that. Uh, standing out, as we said, uh, because of the peculiar hope that we have as resurrection people who live no longer for ourselves, but for the one who, for our sake, died and was raised, who live as people who know that our better and more lasting possessions are not the things of this world, but the ones that are the possessions of the world to come, who live not for a city built with human hands, but for a city not made by human hands, that God has made for us as a home, whose citizenship is not here, but in heaven. That was yesterday's second talk, Peculiar Lives, animated and energised by a peculiar hope. This morning in the third talk, I want to speak about the peculiar honours that we collectively and each of us individually uh, are called and gifted by God to give to the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, so peculiar people, peculiar lives, and this morning, peculiar honours. The text for this morning's talk is that short little Bible reading that we heard from just a moment ago from 1 Peter chapter 4. But I want to start not there... Uh, but in the words of the hymn that's quoted on the outline, if you found it there on page 16 of the booklet, let every creature rise and bring peculiar honours to our King. Angels descend with songs again, and earth repeat the loud Amen. Uh, the hymn that those words were taken from, you may recognise them, about the third or fourth verse of the hymn, was written by Isaac Watts 300 years ago this year. Um, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. And so on. It was written by Isaac Watts 300 years ago. It's still sung today, uh, if you go to the right church anyway. Um, uh, and it's one of the classic expressions of the, um, the kind of um, post-millennial theological vision that he had inherited from the Puritans in the previous century and passed on to the evangelicals of the 18th and the 19th century that followed. Uh, the hymn paints a, a vision, if you're familiar with it, of the coming day when the reign of Jesus as King will extend across the earth from the place where the sun rises in the morning to the place where it sets in the evening, when his kingdom will stretch from shore to shore and people of every continent and island will unite in singing his praises. It's that kind of hymn that was going through the mind of William Carey as he poured over the journals of Captain Cook on his explorations later in the century, as he prayed at his cobbler's desk and workbench, uh, as he um, populated the map of the world that he had above, had above his workbench with statistics about all the peoples of the earth and the islands and the continents and who dwelt where and who had heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus and so on. In the mind of Isaac Watts, and the great majority of the evangelicals in the 18th and the 19th century who sang the hymn and who, who made it famous, the millennium uh, that it looked forward to, that uh, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in every nation and continent and island, was, uh, in their theological perspective, uh, an age that would come to pass 
before the return of the Lord Jesus. The, they believe that it will be brought about through the missionary activity of the church in the power of the spirit and through the moral and political reform movements, the anti-slavery campaigns, the factory law acts and so on, that the evangelicals of that century and the century after uh, were so enthusiastically part of. And there is, of course, room for long debate and discussion about whether they got that particular bit right. Um, debate about the ways in which that particular uh, post-millennial position, as it was understood, as it was called, uh, interpreted the times and the seasons, the relationship between Christ's kingdom and his return and the proclamation and activity and witness of the church. Uh, my point in quoting from the hymn is not to buy into any of that about the times and the seasons. My point, rather, is to highlight three key features of that vision as it's expressed in the verse from the hymn at the top of the outline. To point to three key features of that vision that animated our forebears in the 17th and the 18th and the 19th centuries. One of the three key features that I think are well grounded in the scriptures and thoroughly consistent with the gospel. The first is the way in which the vision that's celebrated in the hymn is oriented toward the praise of Christ. Uh, whatever answers we end up coming about, the meaning of the millennium and the timing of Christ's return and so on. Whatever we end up on that particular millennial theology map. The centre of our hope, if we're in tune with the scriptures and the heartbeat of the gospel, the centre of our hope is the honour of the Lord Jesus and the glory of God in him. We rejoice, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is what we look forward to. We look forward to the day... Philippians 2, when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We look forward to the day when all enemies will have been put under the feet of the risen Jesus and he will hand over the kingdom to his Father that God may be all in all. We look forward to the day according to the vision of the prophets in the Old Testament, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If it's our hope, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, 1 Peter 1 verse 13, 1 Peter 3 verse 15, if it's our hope that sets us apart as the peculiar people of God, the centre of our hope, the thing at the very heart of what we hope for is not just some sort of vague positive vision for a better world or a better life, but the glory of God in Christ. Yep. The second feature of the vision that's celebrated in the hymn, um, which I want to highlight as I start this morning, is the universality of its scope. It's about every creature. Let every creature rise and bring peculiar honours to our King. Angels descend with songs again and earth repeat the loud Amen. Every knee, every tongue, the whole creation transformed and redeemed and glorified. 
the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. From shore to shore. And then thirdly, it's the particularity, the multiplicity, the variety of the myriad ways in which Christ is to be glorified. The vision that the hymn celebrates is one in which every creature rises up to bring its own particular, unique, peculiar honours to the King, to our King, to Jesus. Do you see? Not just all of us moulded, melded, blurred together in some kind of indiscriminate, single, unique monotone of praise. No, each of us with his or her or its own particular note, particular tune, particular contribution to give. Peculiar honours to God the Creator and to Christ our King. All of those elements, I think, the doxological, the praise, the honour, the glory of God, that's at the centre of the vision, the universality of its scope and the particularity, the variety of the ways in which it is brought. All three of those elements, I think, relate to and connect with the vision that we're taught in First Peter. That vision we're given for who we are as the people of God and how we are to live out our lives together and what it is that we live for. I want to remind you of those things. Just point them out um, here in the letter um, in our last talk this morning. The fundamental connection between the encouragements and reminders that were given in 1 Peter and the vision that is celebrated in that old Isaac, what's him, the fundamental connection can be found in the description of our identity and our calling that we've kept coming back to in each of the talks in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Um, here it is again. But you are, verse 9, a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, his peculiar treasure, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. If our accent yesterday was on the first half of that verse, our accent this morning is on the last part, the second half of the verse. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You see, the church is not just a circle of mutual benefit, uh, something which will kind of do you good for being part of, although it is that. The church is not just a workforce for the mission of God, called together with a pragmatic purpose of getting busy to get a job done, although we do have a job to do together. Now, the church is at its very core, at its very heart, its fundamental purpose is the glory and praise and honour of God. That is what we exist for as the bottom line. In that sense, the, church, the purpose of the church is a subset and anticipation of the purpose of the universe. All things exist, the Bible tells us, for God's glory to display his splendour and to give honour to him. That is the purpose of the universe. That is why there is a world, planets, Oceans, blobfish, all of it is for his honour and glory. And a day is coming when, as we've said before, the earth, that whole earth, will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. 
And the church is called to declare in the present what the whole universe will sing for eternity in the age to come. One day every knee will bow. Willingly or unwillingly, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, we are called to declare that now. In the middle of history, in these last days, before the end of time, we are called to anticipate the praises of heaven and the glory that will be given to God the Creator in all eternity. Here and now, ahead of time, we sing His praise. The fact that the whole universe is created for the same ultimate purpose as the church, for the praise and honour of God, does not take away from the peculiarity and the uniqueness of the church's special vocation as the church. Our praises are peculiar, not only in the time frame that they are sung in, here and now before the end, but also in the content of the story that they have to tell. All of the universe exists for the praise of God, the Creator. You are worthy, O Lord and God, the whole creation says in the end. The living creatures all say, because you created all things and by your will they are created and have their being. All the living creatures sing that song. And all of the universe will one day acknowledge the glory of Christ as his Son, the one through whom and for whom all things exist. But it is the church that has the particular song to sing that is about the redemption of a people through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are the ones, Revelation 1 verse 5, who sing for all eternity to him who has loved us and has washed us from our sins and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. That is our song. That is our song. And we sing it now and we will sing it for all eternity. That is what the church is for ultimately, to sing that song. We sing that song and declare those praises, of course, not only when we gather in musical form, but also as we tell the praises of Jesus, the mighty works of God, the saving and glorious work of God through Jesus in our words as we make the gospel known, as we tell others about his praises and his glory and his salvation as we invite others to join us in singing his glory and as we show his worth through the lives that we live. In all of those ways, in all that we do, in song, in word, in deed, we live for his praise. That is the peculiar purpose that we have in common as the church, to sing the song of salvation in the Lamb, redemption through his blood the special and particular song that we've been given to sing, the special and particular story that we've been given to tell. But within that common vocation that we have together as the church, that we share with one another, there is also a particular part that each of us has been given to play. God makes us so called us to be so different from the world around us, but he also makes each of us so different from the people sitting next to us. Uh, we, the church, have a peculiar song to sing. But each of us within the church has a particular gift with which to serve, a particular way in which to bring out glory to God. 
we all, each of us, have our own peculiar honours to bring. And that is what Peter goes on to talk about in the passage that we heard read for us a moment ago in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Let me read it for you one more time to remind us of what it says. Verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over the multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The grace of God, you see, the grace of God of which we've been made the stewards, verse 10, has come to us in various forms. This kind of ice cream comes in a thousand different flavours. The grace of God is showered upon us in a, a myriad of shapes and forms and colours. God redeems us as one people through one Lord Jesus, but he also creates us with an infinite variety of attributes and personalities, and he blesses us with a limitless multiplicity of different gifts. There is no one single way to live well in the world to the glory of God. There are common elements, basic virtues, shared tasks that God calls all of us to be committed to in common with each other. A prayer and love and hospitality are the ones that Peter singles out here. That's all of us. But there's also an endless variety of circumstances and opportunities and abilities and attributes that we possess. Possessed by each of us in unique combinations. And that means that each of us in our own particular way has a unique and peculiar contribution to, the, to make to the way in which Jesus Christ is honoured among his people and in his world. You see, Paul expresses a similar idea through the, the, the metaphor of the body of Christ. One body, if one part suffers, the whole part suffers. The whole body suffers. If one part is honoured, everything rejoices. But each part of the body is not the same. Every part is different, united in one body. For some of us, the principal gift we've been given will be gifts of understanding and speech and the kind of life situation that gives us a context to speak in, a voice to be heard, a chance to be heard. If that is the case, uh, if that is the case for you, if the gift, principal gifts you've been given are understanding and speech and opportunity, then, then we have a solemn and wonderful opportunity to let our voice be heard as a vehicle for the voice of God. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. That means urgency and earnestness and accountability. Yeah. If God has given you that kind of gift, a deep grasp of the the gospel, um, a sharp and clear and curious mind, wisdom in relating the gospel to life, opportunity in your life situation to give time and energy to the ministry of the word, if God has given you that kind of package of gifts, 
because of the language you speak or the avenues of ministry that are open to you or the training that you've had an opportunity to have that's available to you, then those are gifts that not everyone has. And you're a steward of them. Accountable to God for the way in which you use them. Don't waste those gifts. But word gifts, secondly, are not the only kind of gifts that are of value within the economy of God. Those of us whose ministry is the ministry of prayer and the word can sometimes... Um, lapse into acting and speaking as if that was the one way in which God is glorified and the one gift that matters within God's church. And all of our energy can sometimes go into recruiting people to train people to train people to train people to speak the word. And may the word of God always multiply amongst his people. May that always be the case. But that's not the end of the story. Words exist not for their own sake but in order that they might bear fruit in character and in action. So for many of us, the gifts that God has made us stewards of are not only the gifts that enable us to speak, but also, and for some of us especially, the gifts that enable us to serve in action with our hands, to do things and make things, maintain things that bless others and glorify God. The gifts that enable us to serve, not only in word, but in action. This applies, of course, to the whole of our lives. Uh, not only the parts that are a direct participation in activities that are organised and rostered by the church. The way we care for one another at home, uh, the way we perform the paid work that some of us do in many cases for our job, the way that we live out our hobbies and our sports and our entertainments and our friendships, all of those things. All of those things can be spheres in which we promote ourselves and enrich ourselves and assert ourselves to our own glory. Including the pious religious bits. They can be pious religious things that we do to assert ourselves and promote ourselves and enrich ourselves, thinking that godliness is a means to financial gain and to enlarge our glory in the sight of others. All of those things can be perverted into idolatrous works. And conversely, all of those things can be spheres in which we extend blessing to others and do good in the world and demonstrate the wisdom of God and the kindness of the Redeemer. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, as Paul puts it in Colossians, do it all to the glory of God. The overarching goal in all these things then, verse 11, is that God may be praised. Today, um, as I'm sure you're aware, is the 250th anniversary of the death of Johann Sebastian Bach. I celebrated that in some way, saying Corral or a motif or something together at the breakfast. One of the things I love about Bach, among others, along with his music, is the way in which um, at the bottom of every manuscript of every piece that he wrote, his practice, his habitual practice, was to write three little letters, S, not JSB, but SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone, the glory. Bach got the pleasure of writing it, and we get the pleasure of listening to it. God is the one for whose glory it was composed. 
you want to live the kind of life, don't you, where at the bottom of every day is a diary. You look back over the activities of the day, the things that God gave you to do, the tasks that God gave you to complete, the things on the to-do list that you crossed off over the hours of the day. Wouldn't it be great to get to the end of each day's doings and be able to write at the bottom of the journal, I did this stuff, S-D-G. To God alone, the glory of when we take hold of that aim, so that God in all things may be praised, when we take hold of that aim and embrace it in our hearts, it sets us free, I think, it sets us free in a beautiful way from all the anxiety of completeness and display and dependence on the affirmation of others. We're not all here competing in the same race, trying to do the same thing and be the best at it to beat everyone. We're here complimenting one another. Each of us given our own particular task to do. Each of us given our own particular office in which to serve. Each of us given our own particular gifts to use. Not in a competition to amass glory for ourselves, but complimenting one another in the great task that the universe was made for, when the church was set aside for to give glory to God. We don't need to be the kind of people who boast in our own achievements, either overtly or covertly. We don't need to let out surreptitious kind of leaks um, through back channels to let people know about our, our achievements. We don't need to get glory from others for our achievements, our possessions, our children's school grades in order to win the affirmation and approval of others. We don't need to get the Instagram likes or whatever it is they're going to be replaced by now there's no more Instagram likes. <laughs> we live not for ourselves, but for Him. Not for our own glory, but for His. And there is a beautiful freedom in that kind of self-forgiveness. It sets you free from a miserable grind on the competitive of living anxiously for the approval and the glory of others. If anyone serves, Peter says, let them do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to close with another quotation, um, a slightly peculiar one, which is kind of appropriate because it's a poem about peculiarity. Uh, Jared Manley Hopkins, you may have heard of him. I studied him for the HSC in year 12 and his poems kind of got into my bloodstream and have, have never got out since. Uh, he was a Catholic priest who lived in the second half of the 19th century um, who was well acquainted, if you know anything about his life, well acquainted with the feeling of being odd, unusual, out of place, peculiar in every sense of the word. He was a, a celibate, same-sex attracted Catholic priest, a Catholic among Protestants in Oxford, uh, and then an Englishman amongst Irishmen in Dublin. Always, all of his life, he knew the cost and the loneliness of being different, uh, strange, odd. Uh, he carried it as a heavy burden, uh, but he also uh, clung on to, in the midst of that painful strangeness at times, he clung on with both his hands to a deep conviction that God makes each of us, each of us different, and that each one of God's works has its own peculiar task to perform in selving, as he put it, being itself to the glory of God. 
to the glory of its creator. Uh, he expresses that in a number of his poems. Uh, one of them, the most famous perhaps of this theme, is the one Pied Beauty, um, in which he expresses that idea and, and celebrates the way in which the perfect, infinite, immutable glory of God is refracted out and reflected back in all the variety and the diversity of, of the creation. <coughs> he wrote it in 1877, the year in which he failed his final theological college exams and wrote his best poems. Um, I don't know whether there's a coincidence there. Um, and also the year in which, as I said, um, this particular poem was written. Let me read it for you as I close um, before we join our voices together in song, in singing a song of praise to God. Pipey. Glory be to God for dappled things. For skies of couple colour as a brinded cow. For rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim. Fresh fire cold chestnut falls, finches' wings. Landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow and plough. And all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth, whose beauty is past change, praise him. <laughs> <laughs>